We're going to be talking this morning um, about the culture of Cross United Church. About the culture of Cross United Church. If you know anything about organizational leadership, you know that one of the biggest buzzwords in management and leadership, you know, practice, advice, and, and if you're in the marketplace, you know, and you're part of a, a, a company, I am confident if you're part of a, you know, an educational organization, pretty much anywhere you're a part of, they're talking about the culture. They're talking about the culture of that group, that company, that organization, because it, it, it's really been recognized recently that more important than your practices, your, your, your stated values, more important than a lot of other things is sort of this undefinable atmosphere or current that is the, the, sort of the default setting of what people do when they become a part of your group. And, and the, the way I think you can think about it is like if you were floating in the ocean on a, like an inner tube, and the, 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 the culture is sort of like the, the movement of the waves. What direction do you go when you don't try, when you just kind of go with the flow? What is the flow of the organization or the group? Um, and, 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 and if some of you know, like podcasts, business books, that sort of thing, um, that, that, you know, unhealthy culture it's like gossip, winning at all costs, unhealthy competition, deception, selfish ambition, sort of a me-first attitude. And a healthy culture is, is a culture of hard work, creativity, healthy competition, encouragement, team first. Um, I don't know like if any of you saw this, but it was recently the 40th anniversary of the Miracle on Ice, um, where the United States hockey team miraculously beat the Russian hockey team in the 1980 Olympics. And there was that movie Miracle. Anyone? We got Disney Plus who watched it? Yes. So, so I actually re-watched that movie and uh, needed a little just like brain break and I watched that movie and it's got Kurt Russell in it, right? And he's like coaching this team and just like hard-nosed, right? And he's, he's yelling at the, the team because they're all, they're from like, they weren't allowed to have pro players and so they had people from uh, University of Minnesota and Boston University are like huge rivals, and they, but they come together for this national hockey team. And he goes at one point, that, and he's got you know this this uh, you know Minnesota next. The name on the f the front is a whole lot more important than the name on the back, right? And this idea that it's team first, um, and that that's a healthy culture when people are about the group and the goals of the team or the organization more than about padding their own stats, like a sports team uh, analogy would be. Well, I want to talk this morning a little bit about what does it mean for Cross United Church to have a healthy culture? And what is it? What, what should sort of the default setting of our church be? So we um, started this church as a as a, uh, a dream that God put in my heart, you know, many, many years ago, but really in earnest in the fall of 2017, we began to try to gather partners and to recruit uh, people to be a part of the launch team. We had our first interest meeting in November of 2017, and then we had our first preview service in May of 2018, and now here we are, March of 2020, and so we're about 18 months old as a church. We launched officially in September of 2018. And you think about, you know, if you got a kid and they're 18 months old, they're beginning to form their own personality. They're beginning to see what kind of person they are 
and you're beginning to identify um, things that, that God has uniquely gifted them in, uniquely wired them to do, and the nature versus nurture, nature and nurture thing. But you also identify, this is the kind of person I want my child to be, based on the word of God, based on you know, what, what I think is best and as a parent. And in the same way, I think as an 18-month-old church, it's important and healthy for us to say, what kind of church does God want us to be? Not that we don't talk about that all the time anyway, but, but just to kind of reassess. And, and what I think um, the text of Scripture this morning offers us the opportunity to do is to look at just that from a very specific perspective. So we're studying together as a church the Gospel of John, and we're calling it the Book of Life because John says in John 20, 31 that he came that we may have life and, and by believing in his name. And so this, this, this story of life in the book of John, and uh, we've, we've been walking through that just section by section, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we're coming now to the end of chapter 7 into chapter 8 to one of the most famous, famous passages in the whole Bible. And uh, it's the story of the adulterous woman, you know, that, that the, these Pharisees bring this woman caught in adultery and, and say to Jesus, what should we do? And he says, you who are without sin, cast the first stone. If you know any stories of the Bible, that might be one uh, that you know. And I think in this story, we're going to get into it in more detail in just a minute. We're going to see an opportunity to, to ask God to show us the, what the culture of our church should be, what kind of a church should we be trying to, by God's grace, create uh, as we move forward? And, um, and I think the culture of our church, um, we, we, we could use a lot of biblical words, grace, truth, and love, but the culture of our church should be this. And, and this is just, I think, some way of putting what this passage teaches us, if, if we could put up the next slide here, um, that God wants us to be a church that is always safe for sinners but never safe for sin. God wants us to be a church that is always safe for sinners, but never safe for sin. Um, and there's a tension there, and we're going to talk about that as we see how Jesus addresses this very specific situation in John chapter 8. Before we get any further, let's just pause and ask just God to help us and to speak through 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 the message this morning and, and to help us understand, to grow, and for the Holy Spirit to do you know, we could talk about this all day, but only the Holy Spirit can tr create this kind of culture in the life of a congregation. So let's just pray in Jesus' name. Father, we have come to you and asked um, that you would help us. Help us to grasp the magnitude. I love what Al says, Lord, when we talk about the cross. He says, the enormity of the cross. What it is that you, the eternal God, Jesus Christ, became a man, Jesus Christ, and lived a sinless life and died a sinner's death and was buried and raised from the dead. What it, what it means that, that you are going to return and all of, all, of the, 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 all of the elements of the gospel message, Lord, that that would truly penetrate our hearts individually, that it would shape the culture of our families, and it would shape the culture of this congregation, this church, Cross United Church, as we seek to step out in faithfulness on your mission here in South Florida. In Jesus' name, I just ask you to help me to say exactly what you want me to say, nothing I shouldn't say in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I think we're going to see five uh, things this morning, uh, five uh, 
excuse me, six. I had, I had five and then I added one. Uh, uh, five ways to become a, this kind of church based on John 7, 53 through 8, 11. That's our text. How to become a church that's always safe for sinners but never safe for sin. So let's go to the text of Scripture, John 7, 53. Um, and, and the first principle is this. Let Jesus be the teacher. So look at, look at John 57, 53. Then each went to his house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he went to the temple again, and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. So Jesus came, and, and he's more than a teacher, and he came to do more than teach. He came ultimately to give his life and to, to sacrifice himself on the cross for our sins and to reveal the, the nature and the works of God, and to bring us back to God the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit through Him to the Father. Um, but he, he also came as a teacher. He was more than a teacher, infinitely more than a teacher, but He wasn't less than a teacher. Jesus was a teacher, and He began to teach them. Um, and I think we see here a principle for, for the, the, this first principle of how to become a church that is always safe for sinners but never safe for sin. And that is when you let the scripture, when you let Jesus through the Bible set the agenda, then you begin to cultivate the type of church that God wants you to be. Um, you begin to become the type, and, and I say, you know, I also think just kind of as a, you know, a side note, all of the things I'm saying here, if you're looking at your, your family, the culture of your family, I think, um, th these could apply at that level, and they also could apply, apply at the individual level. So, so you kind of think of it at those different levels if you're like, well, I don't care about the culture of this church. Well, well you should care, but if you don't, um, you know, I hope God, the Holy Spirit will change your heart on that. But at least you can think about, okay, well, how does it affect your family in your own life? And then when it affects your family in your own life, you'll care about the church because Jesus died for the church. But so anyway, think about it at the level of your family. Let Jesus set the agenda, be the teacher, your own life, your own heart, the culture of your own heart. But as far as thinking about this congregation, we, we need to be a church and continue to be a church that lets Jesus, through the Bible, set the agenda. Um, and, and I'm not saying we haven't done this, and if we haven't, it's my fault as the, as the pastor, but, but what, what, what I think the church offers to the world, I don't think this, the Bible says this, the, the Bible offers to the world, doesn't it, you know, the, there's a lot of things the world can offer and give that the church tries to mimic, right, in, in terms of enter, entertainment and, you know, interest and intrigue and, you know, whatever, like marketing, like, I know those things aren't bad, we do marketing, I think that's, that's not bad, but what the church offers to the world that the world doesn't have is the truth. What the church offers to the world that the world doesn't have is the truth. Jesus is the truth and the scripture is the truth. And so to, to set a healthy culture for the church, we're going to always be a Bible teaching church. We're going to teach the Bible. We're going to teach sound doctrine. We're going to, this is why I preach, what, some of you may know what this word means, some of you may not, expositionally, where you go section by section, chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the Bible. And, and I like 80% of the time, that's what we're doing. We're just studying a book of the Bible. That's why we started the We Believe podcast, where I'm talking about more thematically our statement of faith and what we believe. And you saw the slide for that on the announcement roll. If not, go to your podcast app and go to Cross United Church, We Believe, and you can pull that up. Just a little 10-minute little thing about our statement. Like, what does it mean for us to say we believe 
um, what we believe and, and going through that. Because we need to let Jesus, as a church, set the agenda for our church. And that goes for your family and your, your own life as well. Um, and, and this is the call of a path. This is my, it's interesting. This is, we were, we're studying the pastoral epistles in the Thursday morning men's Bible study. And, and one of the things you see there is Paul is writing these letters to, to his protege in the faith, Timothy. And, he, um, and he's telling him how to be a good pastor. And over and over and over, he says, he doesn't say lead boldly, although that's, that's fine. Leading boldly is fine. He doesn't say, you know, like create more small groups, although, I mean, that's fine. What he says is teach the Bible. Um, and so what I can offer you, I, there's a lot of things, you know, and here's the thing. My wife can tell you this. If you get to know me well enough and know me long enough, I will be immensely disappointing to you. I just, that's just true. I will just be immensely disappointing to you. Um, just like every person you know, the better you know them, they become disappointing, right? Because we're sinful and we're broken. Um, the, w- what we can offer as a church is we can offer the scripture and to be faithful to teaching the scripture, to let Jesus be the teacher. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. As Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, um, in the temple, rather, these Pharisees come to him, and they begin to weaponize the Bible. And, and, and what we can see in contrast is, as a church, we should use the Bible the right way. So look what happens here in, in John 8, 3. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? Notice it says, they asked this to trap him in order they might have evidence to accuse him. So what they're doing is they're actually, we're going to see in just a second, they're misinterpreting and selectively choosing how they're reading the scripture, in order to weaponize it against Jesus. So they seem to be Bible-driven, like we say we want to be, but they're misusing the Bible. So it's not enough to say you want to believe the Bible, but you have to know how to understand and read the Bible. By the way, the book table in the back, there's a book back there. I think we still have a copy called Grasping God's Word. It's a big book. Little, it's like a workbook, textbook on how to study the Bible, all right? So if you're interested in that, that's available to you. Grab a copy. If you can afford it, put a donation in to cover the cost. But if you're going to read it, take it, and we'll figure out the, the money thing later. So it's not enough to say we believe the Bible, but we have to rightly understand how to use the Bible and interpret the Bible. The, the Pharisees, they are misreading and misinterpreting and weaponizing the Bible because in the Bible that they say they believed... It sh- says this, This is, and these are not going to be on the screen. You can, you can jot a note down or just listen. Leviticus 20, verse 10, and then the same, the same in uh, Deuteronomy 22, verses 22 through 24. It says, this is Leviticus 20, 10. It says, if a man commits adultery with a married woman, with his neighbor's wife, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. So they're bringing the woman out, but where's the man? Where's the man? They're selectively interpreting the Bible, um, and they're putting Jesus to the test. Now, we don't know exactly if they're purposely doing this to see if Jesus knows the other half of the verse. We don't know. All we know is they're misinterpreting the Bible. They're selectively interpreting the Bible to weaponize it against Jesus, who is himself incarnate in flesh, the Word of God. 
So they're using the Word of God against the Word of God. Well, that's not going to end well. It's not going to end well. So as, I think the principle for us as a church is to use the Bible the right way. The, the Scripture says the Bible um, is the sword of the Spirit. And so the Bible is a weapon. But there's a difference between using the Bible as a weapon and weaponizing the Bible. Using the Bible as a weapon to fight against Satan, sin, and death is different than weaponizing the Bible to get to your own agenda done in a specific situation. So I just, I mean, there's probably a hundred ways we could think about this, but I think three main ways we can use the Bible the wrong way. Number one, we can major on the minors. We can major on the minors. What are the minors? Well, they're the things that are less central to the truth of the gospel, right? So let's just pick one that's kind of like easy target, the last things or the end times, right? And, and, I, you know, and I don't think, I've never heard anyone in our church um, say something like this, so I, I'm not picking on anybody. And if you think this, then it's between you and God. Um, but there are people who they get so geeked out about like the rapture and the end times and stuff, and they, they, they kind of miss the central heart of the gospel itself. Um, and, and this is maybe less of an issue now than it was maybe 20 years ago, um, because the reality is, as Christianity becomes more of a minority in our culture, there's just, there's not a lot of room for debating that kind of thing. Like, we have enough to worry about, but some people still do. But that's just an example majoring on the minors. We kind of get our pet favorite little thing the Bible says, and we, we kind of ignore the rest. And, and maybe this is not a minor thing, um, but, but you can, secondly, um, you can not, this is related, not study the whole counsel of God. So you can have like, I love the book of blank, or the, I love, you know, this doctrine. Um, and that there's, there's, Okay, all right, I'm going to do it. I'm going to talk. It's fine. You all know, forgive me. So there's, there's two people you never want to run into, a new Calvinist and a new charismatic, all right? So I don't know if those words mean anything to you. A Calvinist is a certain, and I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that theological system, but this idea of a strong view of God's sovereignty, but they call the first few years of a Cal, when a person who begins to believe that doctrine, they, they call it the cage stage because they said all new Calvinists should be put in a cage for like two years because that's all they want to talk about. And it's kind of the same way for like a newly, you know, a new charismatic where they they experience the spirit and it's like boom, boom, boom. And like I worked with a guy one time and, and, and he just was like constantly like telling me like if I didn't accept him laying hands on me that I wasn't truly a Christian and like all this stuff and and again, I'm sympathetic to both of those streams of theology in certain ways, but the problem is when you make it the totality of what you believe, you begin to get imbalanced, and, and you can even um, be guilty of, a, of mis misconstruing the truth and weaponizing the Bible um, against fellow believers by not studying the whole counsel of God. Acts 20, 28, Paul says, I did not... Um, Neglect to teach you the whole counsel of God. And so, so to be a Bible teaching church, you gotta, you got to address the whole gamut of stuff. Now that I've gotten myself into lots of trouble, let's go to the third. Um, 
And here's, I think, okay, those are, those are two more theoretical ones. Here's a more, uh, more at home in the heart one. Using the Bible to point out other people's sins rather than your own. Using the Bible to point out your other, other people's sins rather than your own. And that can be people like in your own life, or it can be kind of like the people out there. Well, oh, if they didn't do that, then our, our culture, our society would be so much better. But, but what the Scripture says is, is the Scripture is, is, is a mirror, and we should be looking at it to see what's wrong with us before we look, you know, what is, Jesus says in, in Matthew 7, how can you take the speck out of your brother's eye if you have a plank in your own eye, right? So it's like, what's he doing? He's take care of, get your own house in order first, right? And sometimes we, we use the Bible, we talk about all the problems out there rather than saying, well, you know what the biggest problem is? The biggest problem is in here. I am my own worst enemy. Um, and if you don't believe that, then maybe you need to ask the Lord for a little more self-awareness um, because you are your own worst enemy and you should be using the scripture to identify how God wants to work in your heart before you think about how does God want to work? You know what? I don't know, you've done this. I used to do this all the time. Man, this is a great sermon. You know, so-and-so should hear it, right? Um, Third, stop pretending. Stop pretending you have it all together. Stop pretending. And I use those words very, very, I thought a a lot of how to phrase this point. And I I think I was going to try to say it positively, like, be honest about yourself. But, but I actually, I think, I'm very intentionally saying stop pretending. Why? Because church is a great place to act like you've got your stuff together, right? Because we've all done it. We, you know, every once in a while, if my family and I ride to church together, we'll be like yelling at each other in the car, right? And we, get, we pull up and, you know, you, you're the worst, blah, blah, blah. You get out and he's like, hey, you know, it's like, right? You, we just call, you call that Sunday, right? Because you got to put, now, of course, there's something to be said for being polite and that sort of thing. But the reality is we're all here because we're wicked sinners in need of Jesus. So let's stop pretending we're not, all right? Um, look what Jesus says, look what Jesus does, rather, when they bring this woman to him. And again, measuring on the minors. I've, I can't tell you how many people have talked about what is he writing that doesn't matter, okay? Look, Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. What's he writing? If, John, if they wanted us to know, they would have told us. It doesn't matter what he's writing. The, the point is what he says. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, the one without sin should, among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. This is a perfect case in point, by the way, like I just said, majoring on the minors. The point is not what he's writing in the sand or in the dirt. The point is that he tells them, judge not lest you be judged, or by the measure you use it will be measured to you. Or why don't you take the plank, this is the same thing he says in the Sermon on the Mount, why don't you take the plank out of your own eye before trying to remove the speck from her eye? And what he does is he turns the table and he says, Stop pretending you have it all together. Stop pretending. Now, I've been a part of things where, like, sometimes people, like, 
they call it accountability group, where it's really just like, let's talk about our sins and say, oh, yeah, we shouldn't do that. And then you come back the next week, and then you say the same things, and it's no, like, there's no actual repentance. Like, and it's almost like this, you hear people tell their testimony, and they're almost like glorying in their past sin, right? You talk about things, and you kind of say it with a chuckle, like, man, I was really bad, but like, isn't that kind of awesome, you know, that I did that? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about glorying in your sin. I'm talking about being honest about who you really are. Um, and, and here's the goal, that your wife or your kids or your peop- whoever that person or those people are who know you the best, that they would say basically the same thing about you as the people in your church would say about you. And if the people in your church think you're a lot better than the people in your rest of your life think you are, um, then you might be pretending. And here's the thing. The, the best thing about pretending is it's really easy to stop. It's really easy to stop. All you have to do is be honest. Now, this doesn't mean you kind of like, you know, you don't need to like lay it off. It's like you have the greeting time. It's like, oh, did you know I did this? Oh, you know, like, you know, you build that relationship, right? takes relationship. Um, so like if you're addicted to porn or pain meds or Pap's Blue Ribbon, I just had to find alcohol with a P in it, you know. <laughs> if you're addicted to something, you know, the only thing worse than being addicted to something is being addicted to something in secret and, and, and being totally alone in it. So like, do you know that the sin is the sin either way. You might as well have some people praying with you and helping you and being honest because sin is cancer and it grows in secret. Um, and when the, the I, I, there was a, a lady, a dear, dear lady in our pre- church I pastored previously and uh, she went in the hospital for like something like they thought she had like an intestinal dis- disorder or uh, you know something was going on. They didn't think it was that big a deal. Turns out she had cancer all throughout her body, and she was dead within two days. And I stood with her husband at 2 a.m. and watched the EK, you know, the thing go to flatline. Um, and she was older, and she's with Jesus, and just a godly, amazing, wonderful woman. But that's what sin is like. It's like it's growing, and it's can- and you think things are okay, and that you're keeping it under control. And then when you finally get it checked out. It's going to be so big and so massive that it's going to, it's going to be deadly. Um, so so if, if there's stuff in your life, like, bring it out. Be honest. Be, be willing to say, hey. And, and this is vulnerable. And this is scary. And you might say, I, I don't think, I don't know there's anyone I can trust with this. Well, how do you know? Well, you trust them with something small. And then if they find themselves trustworthy, you trust them with something a little bigger. And then when they show themselves trustworthy, you say, okay, now I'm going to drop the bomb, right? And you tell them the big thing. And, and it, so, again, this takes relationships. One of the things we talk about a lot here is authentic community. You've got to be willing to get in people's lives and be honest with each other about things and stop pretending you have it all together. And the thing is, if that's the culture of the church, you know what happens? Someone tells you something, and it's really not that shocking, because you know your own heart, and everyone's honest. You're like, man, we're all really sinful, aren't we? Man. It's like, and by the way, if someone confesses something to you, don't be like, you know, and like freak out. Like, just, like, be aware. Like, we live in a world where people sin, right? And like, 
Maybe it's bigger than you can handle. Maybe, maybe there's professional treatment or counseling that's needed. Maybe there's serious intervention. Maybe it's just prayer and fasting. We don't know. We, you don't know, like, but, you know, but <laughs> let's stop pretending, like, you know, like, that's one of the best things about being a pastor. As Steve Brown, some of you know who Steve Brown is. He's a, he was a pastor in Key Biscayne, and he has a radio ministry. And he says, you know, oh, people tell him, as a pastor, you don't know what real life is like. It's like, as a pastor, I know, people tell me the worst stuff, right? I, you know, people, you know, I, yes. So find someone in the church you can trust, build a relationship, and stop pretending, Right? Now, you get people on the other side who are just like complainers, right? And it's like everything is woe is me and, I, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, don't be that person either. But typically, it's this problem. It's the pretending and acting like everything's good when, when there's something serious that needs to be addressed. Like, man, I'm having a hard time not yelling at my kids. They're driving me nuts, and I feel like I'm sinning against them the way I, I do that. I don't know what to do. Um, I'm going to say, I don't know what to do either. (laughs) Ask Gary. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Number four. Number four. This is where it gets really good. Believe the word of gospel freedom. Believe the word of gospel freedom. Um, That should be verses 9 and 10. I got two. Is there another one with verses 9 and 10 on it? No, no, go back. Okay. Yeah, whoever did these slides messed them up. Oh, wait, that was me. I'm pre- it's not pretending I have it all together, okay? All right. If you got your Bibles, it's verse 9 and 10. Believe the word of gospel freedom. O- only he was left, that's Jesus, with the woman. And when Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Verse 11, no one, Lord, she answered, neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. There's another Bible verse, Romans 8, says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ The word of guilty has been erased from your record, and in place there is a big stamp that says Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, you are free. You are not identified with your sin, even those be, what they call besetting sins that you can't seem to get rid of. That is not your identity. Your identity is in the perfect righteousness imputed to you by the Father, by the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who perfectly obeyed God, who never thought those types of thoughts that you think, who never said those types of things that you say, who never did those kinds of things that you do, and His perfection is accounted to you, and that's how God sees you. So he doesn't see you as the porn addict or the pain med addict or the Paps Blue Ribbon addict. He doesn't see you as the person who can't get a control of their anger or who just melts into anxiety. What he sees you as is as the perfect righteousness of his son. If you have turned from your sin, trusted in Christ and been united to him by faith. That is how God sees you. And there is thou, there, 
now therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus said. John 8, 11. And this is how, this is how a church can be free of the performance pretending syndrome when we recognize, you know what, even if someone else, if someone else does kind of freak out when I tell them, you know, I'm really struggling with this in my life, that I know that the word of the Father over me is that this is my beloved and in him I am well pleased. And that, that the Father doesn't just put up with you, he is pleased with you. Not because you're sinless, because you're messed up just like I am, but because Jesus Christ gave his life, was raised from the dead. And through faith, that's how God sees you. And that's, that's got to be the, that's gotta be the overarching, when people, that, that when people, it, here's, the, here's the sad thing. Most people feel more free and loved at a 12-step meeting than they do in the church. And people who are in AA, you know, they like, that, that's a place where people, they are able to receive forgiveness and move on. And the church, they say, that's a place where I get judged and where everyone just acts like they're better than me. And can't be that way. Why? Because Jesus has set us free. Uh, number five, I don't know if, I, I don't know what happened. This, I did something messed up with the slides. Okay, so we don't even have a five, so that's awesome. <laughs> Um, so just, just put up a blank screen and we'll just, we'll just go, we'll just go with the rest of it. Um, number five, repent often, repent often. Notice Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. So don't stress. You're not perfect. It's not what Jesus says. He doesn't say, neither do I condemn you. I'm full of grace. And so, you know, just do whatever you need to do. No. He says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. So there is there the perfect balance of both freedom in the gospel and repentance from sin. And Jesus will always bring both to your life. He will bring immense freedom from sin and immense challenge and conviction to repent of sin continually. The, one, of the, one of the verses that people know really well is from Matthew 7. It says, don't judge so you won't be judged. That's where we get the plank and the speck thing. Why do you look, Matthew 7, 3, it's not up there, just because like nothing's up there because I messed it all up. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, take, let me take that splinter out of your eye and look, there's a beam of wood in your eye. Now, now, that's usually where we stop, right? Deal with, and I already, we, we talked about that. So, so, so whole counsel of God. But no, notice what it says in verse 5. Listen to this. Hypocrite, first take the beam out of your eye, but notice, then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. So you must repent of your sin, and you must deal with your own stuff and walk in freedom, and then you can step in and help others. See, so first, you have to repent. What is repentance? It means a change of attitude. Or really, technically, it's, it's a turning of the mind, but it, it's a change of attitude and action toward your sin. 
And, it, it, and it's, a, it's a U-turn in the way you think and the way you behave. And so, like, if I want to go to the beach, and I want to go to, like, you know, Deerfield or Pompano, I want to go to the beach on the east coast of Florida, and I start driving west on Sample Road, I'm, I'm, what, do I, what does repentance look like? It looks like recognizing I'm going the wrong way, that's a change of mind, and then turning the car around to come back the other direction. Repentance requires both in your life. You have to recognize that you're wrong, and you actually have to turn away from that behavior by the grace of God. So it's not enough to say, I don't like being addicted to this, that, and the other. Oh, I feel so terrible, right? But if you keep doing the same things over and over, that is not repentance. That's just feeling bad. The Bible has a distinction between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Repentance starts with sorrow over your sin. It means feeling bad. It means feeling like, I wish I could change this. But true repentance means you, you move from that place of recognition to saying, you know what, I'm going to do what it takes to turn away from this and walk and move toward the light. It starts with an attitude and it ends in a change of behavior. It doesn't mean you sin you are sinless, but that you sin less. And the overall trajectory of your life is movement toward Christ and likeness to Christ. We talk about this a lot. I think we talked about this at Bible study a couple weeks ago. You can't look at snapshots. You got you to look at an overall trajectory. Because if you look at any given moment in your life, you may be going sideways or one way or the other. You got to look at the overall trajectory. Where were you 10 years ago or five years ago? And where are you now? Is the overall trajectory more toward the image of Christ or less? Repent often. And then here's the sixth one. I think this one I actually do have up here. Um, number six. Love each other enough to confront sin. So once you've done all of this, notice all of this, all of this is, is it, as far as the culture of a church that's safe for sinners but never safe for sin, starts at home. It starts in the heart. Let Jesus be the teacher. Use the Bible the right way. Don't weaponize the scripture. Stop pretending you have it all together. Believe the word of gospel freedom. Repent often. All of that is taking care of your own stuff. It's taking the beam and the log out of your own eye. But then, like I said, Jesus says then, once you take the beam out of your eye, it doesn't say, leave your brother alone. It says, then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. The problem isn't trying to remove a splinter from your brother's eye. It's that your sin is in your estimation, should be massively bigger than their sin, first of all. Second of all, you should be dealing with your own stuff before you deal with someone else's stuff. But then, once you're in that place of walking in freedom, walking in holiness, walking in repentance, walking in the light of the gospel, you should love your brothers and sisters enough to say, you got something in your eye, let me help you with it. Too often we stop, if we get to this point at all, we stop because it's really uncomfortable to talk to people about stuff in their life. You, it's a big risk, right? It's a big risk. 
But we must love each other enough to call each other to repentance. And as people, we must be secure enough to receive that from another person. And this is, this is tough. And this is, this is like a level of spiritual maturity that most Christians never get to. This is a level of spiritual maturity that most churches never get to. Where there is genuine freedom in the gospel, there is genuine repentance in the lives of people, and there is genuine approach to love people enough to say, hey, I don't know if you see, and, and the thing is, the thing that's hard about that is it doesn't always go the right way. It doesn't always go the right way. I honestly, more people I've confronted over their sin have said, well, then to heck with you and to heck with God than have said, you know what, you're right. But you know what? What is that? That is God's refining fire. That is God's refining grace in his church. But you know what? Sometimes there's someone who will say, you know what, you're right. You're right. And then they will put their actions where their words and their attitude seems to be. And they will genuinely move toward Christ-likeness. Um, and I think, I think if we can get uh, these things infused into the culture of our church, that it could be a really special place where it's safe for sinners but never safe for sin. Because mostly, honestly, usually it's like one or the other. Where it's like it's, a, it's, it's safe for sinners, but what that means is everyone kind of just lives how they want. And under the, the auspices of grace, there's no call to repentance. There's no value of holiness. There's no like high calling of the upward calling Christ Jesus of the gospel. And then on the other side, there's like all about repentance and all about holiness. And there's no grace. There's no flexibility. There's no room for being real about who you really are, and it creates cultures of fear and control. But I think that when you really get what Jesus is about right, you have both. Um, and I think that's the kind of church he wants us to be. So let's ask him to, 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 to do that. So let's pray. Father, I just ask you would, um, you would create this kind of church. Um, and Lord, I think you already are, in a lot of ways, doing this. And uh, I, I can see the personality of Cross United beginning to show up and uh and i i, I like who who we're who we're becoming and uh, i just pray you would would continue to do that by your spirit um you would continue to form us into the image of christ and create a culture of grace and love and truth and that we would always be a church that's safe for sinners but never a church that's safe for sin and i pray these things in jesus name amen